The following audio is via a Skype call. Now here's something we hope you'll really like. It's Manson Mitchell on the weekend with Gary Manson's Suzanne Mitchell. A double shot of good conversation with great guests to power up your day. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. Thank you, Eric Kramer. Hi, everybody. I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. We are Mance and Mitchell in your ears for the hour. Glad to be there, too. This is going to be a touching and funny, a heartfelt and adventurous, and at times a harrowing hour. What an interview we have for you today. But before we get to all that, let's say hello to the man who keeps us on an even keel from his host at the board there at KKNW HQ. That's tall guy Nathan. How are you today, Nathan? Hey, good morning. And of course, what would a Saturday morning be without our daily double, Gary and Suzanne? And of course, we had to pay our respects to Mr. Alex Trebek as well, longtime great host of Jeopardy. Absolutely. A, a marvelous career to be known for actually many things, but particularly for Jeopardy, where he became an international star and leaves a wonderful, enduring legacy of television success. I know, Nathan, by the way, I just wanted to say two people, uh, one of them still living and one, surprisingly, I found out deceased with whom I went to high school. Two people were contestants on Jeopardy. They didn't go past the first round, but I can say I know two very knowledgeable people who battled with that buzzer in trying to beat the eventual champion on that show, and they had a great time doing it. Always fun to tune in. Which I did, too. Not so much in recent years, but, man, when I was living in Las Vegas back in the 1980s, I was tuned into that every night it was on. And, again, we will miss Alex Trebek. We are not going to miss the opportunity today to talk to a gentleman with a long, six decades long career in Hollywood and various other aspects of the entertainment world. And man, what this guy came from, it either should or shouldn't happen to you, depending on your point of view, but it did happen to Hank Garrett. This gentleman was born October 26, 1931, and he is an American actor, voice actor, and stand-up comic, most notable, perhaps, for portraying Officer Ed Nicholson from Car 54, Where Are You? Mr. Garrett has appeared in films such as the 1968 version of The Producers. He was in Serpico. He was in Death Wish. He was in, very memorably, Three Days of the Condor, one of the best fight scenes in film history happened in that film with Robert Redford and fighting the heavy Hank Garrett. Incredible. He was in The Sentinel. He was in Exorcist II, The Heretic, and the 1979 version of the Amityville Horror. His television credentials include the 1979 series Paris with James Earl Jones. Knott's Landing is in his resume, HBO's First and Ten, Santa Barbara, and Max Headroom. How quirky was that? We still remember that one. He was the voice of Dial Tone in G.I. Joe, a real American hero. Hank Garrett is the author of a wonderful autobiography that we will plunge into very shortly. And that book is called From Harlem Hoodlum to Hollywood Heavyweight. Hank Garrett joins us on the phone now, and we can't welcome you any more warmly, Hank. Thank you for agreeing to be on our show. Thank you for having me. And one correction. I was yes. Born in 1941. 31 is an error. Oh, 1941. And I'll tell you how that occurred. Okay. Uh, I was wrestling at the age of 16, and uh, at 17, I wanted to turn pro, but I was too young. I had to be over 21. So they changed my birth certificate to read 1931 instead of 1941. I see. So and I. That, and I Yes. <laughs> so here I am. <laughs> well, and that's so much of your story. That's it. You know, let's just go ahead and jump in right there, Hank. And thanks for that correction. When you were quite young, you found yourself, as your sainted mother said, Hank has seen a lot. And man, was that ever true. 
there it seemed to me that you were thrust into a world that not only was extremely tough to get through the melting pot of Harlem, as you refer to it in your autobiography, but also it seemed that for you to get where you wanted to go in life, it, heading in various directions at various times, one of the things characteristic of you seems to be that you looked younger than you actually, or older, actually, that'd be a better way of putting it, looking older than you were and having to take on some heavy responsibilities at a very young age. Yes. Uh, well, uh, start from the beginning. That's, uh, my, my folks were immigrants from Russia, uh, and uh, I was born quite late in life for them. Uh, my mom was in her mid to late 40s, and my dad was in his 50s. Uh, and uh, they were fruit and vegetable peddlers on, on using a push cart, and they didn't have much time for me. Uh, they were working 15, 16 hours a day just to make enough money to pay the rent and some food. So I was on my own. I actually lived on the streets. I slept in cardboard boxes. Uh, I, times I slept under the stairwell of the building we lived in, which was a slum. So uh, I was always in trouble. I was fighting all the time because I didn't know who I was. On my birth certificate, there, there were four last names. I didn't know any of those names. Uh, my father, who I learned, later learned, was here in the country illegally, and uh, he hooked up with my mom, who was a widow with three more, uh, two children, uh, and uh, my, my two half-brothers were in the military when I was born. So I was quite a surprise when they came home. Uh, they were both overseas. And uh, so, as I said, I, I spent most of my life on the street. I became a hoodlum. I was fighting all the time because uh, I was always angry, not knowing who the heck I was, uh, not knowing that I had a mother and father. In fact, at one point, I, was, I remember standing at the push cart with my mom, and I was about five or six years old, possibly younger, and a woman came up to my mother and said, oh, is that your little boy? And she said, oh, no, 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 that's my grandson. And I remember my mother saying she's my grandmother. And a few years later, a census taker came to the house, and my father was at the door. And he said, uh, how many people in the family? How many? And he said, well, there's a woman and her three kids. And the census takers asked, and, and who are you? And he said, I'm an uncle visiting. So now my father's my uncle. My mother's my grandmother. And I took that to the street with me. And, uh, boy, I was always in trouble fighting, never knowing why I was so angry. And later on, I found out why. <laughs> When you when you I, say later on you found out why it it seems to me and and Gary and I were reading those early years in your book and we're quite fascinated by that. But if your dad was here illegally, of course he wouldn't want to have admitted that to the census taker. And if your mom had you late in life, maybe she just didn't want you know maybe she was embarrassed and and yes, thought exactly. you That's know what I found out right and so it makes sense afraid. later. Yeah, it makes sense later on, but you don't know that in the moment, and that's what makes life so hard when you're young and trying to put all those pieces together. You exactly. Had, yeah, you had so many great stories from your childhood. We couldn't possibly go through all of the things that happened to you, and Gary and I picked out some of our, our favorite uh, episodes from your childhood but, you know, you, you say you were a hoodlum rather casually, but you really were on your own. Even though you had a mother and a father, you were on the streets. You were, you know, um, getting into all kinds of trouble. And um, 
it's amazing that you transformed yourself. You actually had to raise and transform yourself from a young hoodlum into a man. Uh, but, you know, just uh, the, the, what you went through, uh, can you believe it when you look back on it now and you're writing your book? Oh, it's... Uh... <laughs> People have called me uh, friends, and they said, oh, my God, I, I had no idea. In fact, a gentleman, a friend of mine, uh, he called and he said, I, oh, my God, Hank, I just want to apologize for your childhood. He said, you lived with all, all those cockroaches and rats. And I said, yes, every time you put on the light in the kitchen all those cockroaches would start running. And they actually blanketed the wall. Mm. And I remember at one time I was asleep when I was home, and I felt this weight on my chest, and I put on the light, you know, a drawstring that hung down, and I pulled on that, and there was a huge rat sitting on my chest. Oh, wow. And I swatted the rat, and he just landed and just glared at me and didn't run, walk away to wherever his hideout was. And that was the kind of life. That was the kind of life I experienced, and everybody else knew the same situation. All the kids I grew up with, we could have become a gang, but we didn't. We sat and we talked. Most of us smoked. I know I started smoking when I was about 10, 10 or 11 years old. And I experienced some, some pretty bad stuff when I was nine years old, standing in front of the building. And a gang came over and one kid punched me in the face. And he was about 14 or 15 years old. And he broke my nose. So I had my nose broken when I was nine. And the other kids in the, his gang said, why did you hit that kid? And he said, well, he cursed my mother. And I didn't know him from Adam. But I never forgot him. And later on in life, I ran into him. Now, I had started pumping iron at a very early age, and I was getting huge. I became a professional wrestler. I'm in the Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame. Well, I ran into him, and I said, you don't remember me. And he looked, he said, oh, man, I don't know you. I said, I'm the kid that you hit and broke my nose when I was nine, and now I'm going to kill you. And he dropped to the ground and said, oh, man, don't kill me, please, please, please. And I had the satisfaction. I said, oh, and uh, hey, Say hello to your mom for me. And I walked away. So that was the kind of situation. And I remember coming, coming home from school, a bunch of us, and one of the kids tripped and fell. We thought he had tripped. And we laughed that he was so clumsy, and we looked down, and there was blood pouring out of his head. Or somebody up on a roof fired a rifle into a bunch of kids and it hit my friend. So I saw a lot of death as a kid, things I should never have seen. But it was part of the the day. So well that, it was it was Harlem it was that day that era and and that place in New York that was um, you know what you would call the mean streets what what you did with that from what we read is you, you could have gone one way and and be, gotten into a gang but it you say that between the ages of 11 and 16 that for those six years, you were heavy into not only wrestling, but martial arts and comedy and acting. And, and, and that's, those are like uh, high school years, like junior high yes. and high school years. Now I've got to tell you how that happened. My mother had a customer 
who was a favorite customer. He used to get off fresh fruits and vegetables. And she was crying to him about me always being in trouble. He was the mayor of Harlem. And he came to me, he talked to me, and he walked over to me, and I'm standing there smoking a cigarette, and he slapped the cigarette out of my mouth. I said, what the hell are you doing? And I actually balled up my fist. I was going to throw a punch. And two mountains came toward me. They were his bodyguards. And he came to me and said, your mom wants me to take you out. And I said, my mom wants you to kill me? Because that's what happens when they say, take out. So I said, he said, no, stupid. I'm taking you to meet somebody this evening. And do you have a suit? And I said, yeah, I've got a suit. He said, wear your suit. But before you put it on, take a bath. And I, wow. Well, I put on my suit, and he took me, he drove up and took me to Apollo Theater, the Apollo Theater. Ah, I'm standing there, and I looked at the marquee, and it said Sammy Davis Jr. He took me to Sammy Davis Jr.'s dressing room. We went in, and he said to, to Sammy Davis, this is the kid I was talking to you about. And he, Sammy said, come here, my man, sit down. I sat down. And he talked to me. He said, you're a tough guy. I said, yeah. He said, let me tell you what happens with tough guys. You wind up with broken bones and scars. But you, the way you're going, you're going to wind up in prison or dead. And I heard that. And he was so right. I had a pistol in my pocket. I had a 25 caliber pistol that had been given to me by one of the older hoodlings. And he got me a job as a band boy with an African-American orchestra. And I said, what's a band boy? And he explained. He said, you put the music out for each of the musicians, the correct musicians, the correct charts, and then at the end of the gig, you put everything back, and you put out the seats and whatever else you're asked to do. So I did. And at the end of the gig, the band leader came up to me, and he gave me $50, 50 bucks. He said, get yourself some new kicks, and this is your regular gig. And we played, or we worked at Hotel Teresa in Harlem. And that's when he gave me the $50 and said, get some new kicks. My shoes were torn to shreds. The next day, I went to Florsheim. I bought a pair of Florsheim shoes for $15, and I gave my mom... The 35. More money than she had seen in her life. Mm. And I started working uh, because I, I had a kind of bent for comedy. Uh, a couple of times, comedy saved me from a very bad beating. I was surrounded by a gang, and rather than try to fight my way out of it, I started telling jokes. I was talking about the neighborhood. And they started laughing. And they said, hey, man, he ain't no bad guy. He's funny. And that's how the comedy started for me. I wound up working in the Catskills with Sammy Davis Jr., who got me a couple of jobs at, in the Catskills. Well, 20-some-odd years later, I was appearing at the Sands in Las Vegas with Tony Bennett. I wound up being Tony Bennett's opening act for four years. Opening night at, at the Sands, ringside, Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, Peter Lawford, and Sammy Davis Jr. I finished my show. Frank Sinatra gave me a standing ovation. Mm. And I'm standing there shocked. And 
the entire audience stood up and applauded. Oh boy, this is tough for me because it's not uh, it, it's well magnificent. Hank, um, let me just let me intercede to ask you this one thing as you're telling this story. Didn't you feel yeah. perhaps frequently during those years that you were being guided by an unseen hand? I knew there was something guiding me because there were times that I could have gotten into deeper trouble. Uh, some people wanted me to go along on a holdup. And I said, no, no, uh, that, that's not my game. I don't play that. I needed the money. I had none. But something said, no, uh -uh. no, no, no. You can be a tough guy, but you're not a thief. And that was the voice I heard. Turns out the voice I heard was an angel that was sent to me. The angel was named Sammy Davis Jr. Yes. He guided my life. In fact, a couple of times I went to his home, uh, had parties. And he would walk by and say, uh-uh, no drink. I said, no, Sam, I don't drink. But prior to that, when I did the show, Sam came up to me and said, you are a funny cat. But I know you from somewhere, man. You look so familiar. And I said, Sam, I'm the kid that you said was going to go to prison or die. And he said, that's you? And I said, yeah. And the two of us stood there. We hugged and cried. Oh, wow. We did pour, I mean, our faces were covered in tears. Mm. And, uh, wow. So I now go to different prisons where children are incarcerated. Children from 11 to 17 behind bars. And I talk to them. And I, well, first they show a clip of my manager does this. She ran a clip from Car 54, Where Are You? Now these kids never saw the show. And they laughed. And then I'm introduced, and they're looking at me and saying, Hey, you're a movie star. I said, No, let me tell you about my life. is the same as your life. I was sitting there where you're sitting. I went through it, my man. And 14 kids wrote letters to me. And they said, Mr. Garrett, Sammy Davis Jr. was your angel. You are our angel. Oh. And it killed me. It just killed me. Every time I talk, oh, that's him. I'm yes. going out. I get it. I get it. And uh, and we have a, a few minutes before uh, our uh, one break of the hour. Actually, we take it at the bottom of the hour. But Hank Garrett, I did want to say to you that in telling your story in this autobiography, and I encourage everyone to get their own copy. It's extraordinary. It's called From Harlem Hoodlum to Hollywood Heavyweight. And Hank, it seems to me that there is kind of a motif running through the first third of your life, shall we say. And that is, you speak of it, you know, just it, you drop it into your narrative here and again. It seems like you were driven because of metaphorically as well as literally, you had a constant hunger. You spent a lot of your young life being hungry. Yes. Yes. In fact, at, at one point, Oh, man. It was a winter evening, and I'm walking outside by myself, and I saw a, a store with the window blacked out, and I heard music, and I looked in the door. The door was open, and people were clapping their hands and singing and dancing. And, and then I just stood there, and I went, whoa. What, what what was this? And I looked and there was a sign saying gospel. And I just stood there and a, guy, a gentleman came up to me and said, Hey, son. I said, yes, sir. He said, uh, 
have you ever been here? And I said, no, 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 no. He said, are you hungry? I said, sir, that's my middle name. <laughs> he said, come on in. Oh, jeez. <clears throat> Forgive me, I keep breaking up. Uh, he brought me inside, and there was people, they were dressed in suits and dresses, and they, they, the, play, the air smelled wonderfully, and it was perfume, and, and I saw all this food. And he said, if you're hungry, sit and eat. Eat as much as you want. And if you're hungry and your mom is hungry, I'm going to wrap up a package for you to take home to your mama. And I just sat there. And I, I, he got up and preached, and I sat there. And I'm crying. These people who are enjoying life, enjoy, and having a wonderful time together. And as he took me home, or took me to the door with a package of food. I said, just looked at him and uh, I, I said, sir, I don't know your name. He said, I'm Father Divine. And I said, thank you. And he said, God bless you, my boy. He says, I'll be seeing and hearing a lot about you. And Wow. And I'll bet looking back all these years later, you can imagine that buffet, the smells, the tastes, the, the friendship offered to you. And you might say to yourself, Las Vegas should have such a buffet. Yes. In fact, I'm, we, myself and my manager, we're creating a place called Hangster's Kids. It's a place for kids after school or off the street, a place for them to come to, to feel safe, to learn. If they have homework, we'll help you with your homework. If you're hungry, we'll feed you. If you need a place to stay, we'll give you a place to stay. I want to save some kids. My son spent a good portion of his life incarcerated because he had attention deficit and hyperactivity. No one knew what that was. They didn't know how to deal with it. They all wanted to give him more and more and more drugs. Well, he was incarcerated and spent a lot of time in prison for theft. He broke into a couple of cars and stole a radio. Well, he finally got out got a job. He had learned welding in prison, got a job, and he was working with Universal. His first paycheck, he bought himself a motorcycle, and he was killed. He was killed in a motorcycle accident. Somebody cut him off. He hit the back of a truck, and he was airborne. Oh, my goodness. I couldn't save my son but I'm going to save other kids. And of that, but, Hank, I have no doubt. I know that you were doing such good work. Thank you. Let's go ahead and take our break. We take one an hour and this is it. There, And we are <laughs> in the middle of a fascinating interview with a fascinating man who's lived about 25 lives in one and it's our great privilege to be able to talk with Hank Garrett today. Thank goodness for Harlan Bull in Hollywood publicity circles. He is a god, and he made Hank available today. We will continue on the other side of a short break. And for those of us who are baby boomers, and that constitutes a good deal of our listenership, they know the name Nat Hiken. Not a household word anymore, but in the history of television, Nat Hyken is regarded as a genius, and he provided our guest of this hour, Hank Garrett, with the opportunity of a lifetime. We're going to hear about that on the other side of this break. We are Manson Mitchell. Thanks for tuning in. We will be right back. The preceding audio was via a Skype call. 
staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to manceandmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash Mitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world-famed, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is manceandmitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 AM or streaming live from your computer anywhere. Terry Loving wants to help you with your online marketing challenges right now. She has several courses she is giving away to help you get your business working for you online. Yes, giving away. WordPress websites are her specialty, yet her technical skills go way beyond that. Check out her blog at terryloving.com or email her directly at terry at terryloving.com. That's terry at terryloving.com. Right now, Doctors Without Borders medical teams are operating in some of the most remote and dangerous corners of the world. When front yards become front lines, when disaster erupts, when disease rages, when communities collapse under crisis, at the crossroads of conflict and epidemic, where there are no hospitals, that's where we operate. We go where conditions are the worst because that's where we're needed most. In nearly 70 countries, we're saving lives threatened by violence, disease, malnutrition, and catastrophic events. Donors are vital to our mission. Your response is critical to our response in places where a few others will go. That's where we operate. Learn more at doctorswithoutborders.org. On Friday, Manson Mitchell welcome Robert Moss, creator of the School of Active Dreaming, to talk about his latest book, Growing Big Dreams, and how to use our imaginations in very practical ways. On Saturday, Teresa Fieberts, a minister who teaches the science of mind philosophy, talks about making the attitude of gratitude a daily practice in your life. Bringing you fascinating talk one hour at a time since 2007. We are Manson Mitchell, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on Alternative Talk AM 1150. Talk radio that will get you thinking. Alternative Talk 1150. The following audio is via a Skype call. (laughs) Yes, we played the whole theme song. Do you mind? Welcome back to Manson Mitchell and our very special guest this hour, Hank Garrett. He is the star of so many things, probably best known for Car 54, where are you, but has a very, very long... Hello? Looks like we lost Gary and Suzanne. You want to tell us about your book and where we can get it? Tell us a bit about that. Oh, yes. It will be at Amazon and under books. And it's the, the title. And uh, thanks to Holland Ball. Yeah, from Holland Hoodlum to Hollywood Heavyweight. And uh, I've been very fortunate and, and uh, God. Holland Ball, who is an incredible publicist, and I, I owe so much to him. But when I was listening to the theme, uh, I remember my audition for Car 54. I was a, I became a cop. I was a, on the police force for just a couple of months. And a friend of mine who was a, a stand-up comic named Mickey Deans, his wife was Matt Hikins. Secretary Matt Hyken had created so many shows, oh, the Martha Ray show, and I mean, wrote for every major show imaginable. Well, I was brought to Matt Hyken, and I sat there, and he was a very quiet, very kind of a, a soft-spoken 
gentleman, and, and he looked at me and said, you're Ed Nicholson. And I said, oh, no, 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 I'm Hank Garrett. He said, just the kind of dummy I'm looking for, Ed Nicholson, <laughs> that I want you to play on this show. So next thing I know is I'm Ed Nicholson on Car 54, where are you? It doesn't seem like you uh, did an audition. All you did was walk in and he took one look at you? You showed up. Yes, exactly. And uh, I and why did I become a cop? Uh, I, I thought I was going to make an incredible difference as a police officer. And when I left the show, when I left the, the police force, and I went up to my commanding officer, and I said, sir, I'm going to be doing a television show called Call 54, Where Are You? And it's a comedy about uh, a police department. And he said, well, Hank, do you want to be a comic on television or remain a comic as a cop? <laughs> I said, well, I think I'm going to go with the television show. Thank you. And never looked back. It, it opened the doors for so many things. And uh, there, too, it gave me a chance to talk to kids, to travel around. Uh, of course, Car 54 became a very hot show. Yes. And more people knew me because of it. So I couldn't help others that way. And, uh, oh, it's... Wonderful stuff it is. And, you know, Hank, I wanted to say that when I was a kid growing up, I was a parochial school kid in Orange County, California. And for me, Sunday night was my window on the world to a large extent. It ended one week and began another. And people who are not baby boomers have their own favorites. They they would substitute the names of shows and the stars and so forth. But for us, Hank, in my household, Sunday nights consisted of, of course, Ed Sullivan, but also Walt Disney, right? His palace was seven miles down the road from where I live. Oh, sure. There was also Bonanza. There was Lassie. There was Candid Camera. And there was Car 54, Where Are You?, which I absolutely loved. I never, never <laughs> missed an episode. And I watched it rather religiously before I caught a bus to school. As soon as it went into syndication, which was very soon after its production run, I was fascinated by that, that it was available as reruns so soon. And I would watch them. I clearly remember you and your magnificent physique, for which I understand you had to drop about 40 pounds to have a more natural look there because you were a real <laughs> Mr. Universe, Mr. Olympia type. And you you were there uh, with a narcissistic streak, and they would film you. Nat Hyken had this idea. This was part of the genius of the man. He really needs to be appreciated. There, He oh, would God. have you with your physique in the, in the shot, but he also would have a camera trained to capture your rather narcissistic or conceited reflection in the mirror. That hadn't been done exactly. before. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, my God. Yeah, that was Nat. Oh, my God. He said he had the camera placed at such an angle that it would pick up my image in the mirror while I was standing there flexing. Oh, Wow. I mean, I would wow, I would say somewhere that. Alfred Hitchcock and Stanley Kubrick are admiring the technique. <laughs> that is beautiful. <laughs> that is really something. And Nat Hyken, people need to know. Now, today, and we celebrate with uh, full justification the work of the career, because he's had a long time to do it, of a guy like Chuck Lorre, the, the master at CBS and elsewhere. But his hits are, are just the stuff of TV legend and always will be. Nat Hyken had put together the Martha Ray show, the Phil Silver show, with the wonderful character of Sergeant Bilko and all those around him. And then yes. there was Car 54, Where Are You? After it went out of production, I understand five years later, Nat Hyken tragically died of a heart attack at the still young age of 54. And Hank, I often yes. wonder if he had lived another 10, 20 years, what could have, what he could have accomplished with the, with the time he had that was cut short. Oh, it, it, we were shocked. 
uh, he and Joey had uh, uh, a lot of words. Uh, it went to Joey Ross's head. He uh, he come to to shoot. Didn't know his lines uh, because he was out partying. Uh, and Matt was getting building up this this full steam of anger, and he said, "Joey, what are you doing? What are you doing? We're, we've been here for hours for you to get out these four or five lines." Uh, and it it ate away at Matt. Uh, so uh, we we saw this, and we we tried to keep quiet. Uh, and Matt took everything to heart, and uh, that was the result. But he was an incredible man, brilliant. He would walk on set and suddenly decide to change the whole scene because something funnier occurred to him, and we'd and he just dictate how he wanted each of us to play the scene. And we did, and it was absolutely perfect each and every time. He was an incredible, oh my God, incredibly brilliant man. He absolutely was to look at the results. And perhaps you'll agree with me, Hank, when I say that one of the reasons, and there are many, but one of the reasons to appreciate Car 54, Where Are You, all these years later, was because of Nat Hyken's sensitive touch in the area of ethnicity. It seems to me, looking at the episodes now, and I've seen them countless times, but when I I look at those, I, I don't feel dirty for enjoying ethnic humor. You know what I mean? <laughs> In fact, uh, oh dear, I hate to say this, but I am the only one left from the show. Yes, you are. You're the sole survivor, the last of your tribe. Oh, I learned so much about acting and, and just performing, watching that hiking. Oh, wow. What a privilege. I mean, if I had been there, I would think I was just in heaven. I have have such an appreciation for that man, and he should never be forgotten. You know, one of the things that we were wondering about is this sequence of how you got from here to there to somewhere else. And you were doing uh, comedy and acting as a teenager, as a high school kid. And then you tell the story about how you really got the acting bug, like it was really secured in you, when you had lunch with James Cagney. And I wanted you to tell that story. Because you were imitating him. Oh, God. I was an extra. (laughs) Oh, my God. I was an extra. And... Uh, a friend of mine got me a new job. He was he was a pro extra. <laughs> so I remember was standing uh, and was shooting on the docks, and I, there's a, a, a stage uh, higher than my head, and Cagney's going to make the speech to all these guys working on the docks. I. <laughs> hear that it's James Cagney. I was doing an impression of James Cagney in my act. <laughs> so now I stand there, and my friend is standing, and I'm going, all right, you dirty rats. I want you to line up. And, I, and my friend points up, and I look, and there's Cagney. And he looked down at me and said, you're the fattest Cagney I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> And he said, you, move over to the side. I want to talk to you. And I moved to the side, and I had lunch with James Cagney. And he he started talking. He was raised on the Lower East Side of New York, which was predominantly Jewish. And Cagney spoke Yiddish. That's astounding. 
So he and I were, were kidding around, and he, uh, he, he said, and he, at one point, was studying judo. I had played some judo because one of my mentors was a guy named Judo Gene LaBelle. Gene LaBelle was the heavyweight champ of the world in judo, judo and jiu-jitsu. So Cagney and I were talking about judo, and I was into karate and other martial arts. In fact, I'm, I'm a grandmaster now. So, oh, what a, what a moment in my life. Cagney, oh, God. This amazing you, superstar. Wow, wow, wow. The thing that, you know what fascinated me, well, a lot of things, about James Cagney was... And he said this when he was receiving an award. I think it was a Lifetime Achievement Award. And when he was making his acceptance speech, he said, I always thought of myself as a hoofer. This magnificent actor with that range and the depth of his performances, he saw himself principally as a dancer. Yes. Uh, he loved dancing. In fact, uh, oh, Yankee Doodle Daddy... Uh, he, sang, he did the song where he danced, and he danced across the stage, and he did a flip up on the, going up against the wall and doing a flip over. So, oh, what a guy. Oh, it's, first, it's remarkable. When he, when he started out, he told me, uh, he was told, look, you want to be, you're never going to be a leading man. You're too short. And he said, we'll see. We'll see about that. <laughs> wow. And whatever happened to him. Yeah, whatever happened to him. Yes, yeah, that, yeah. yes my goodness. And he also, it should be said, that uh, being raised in New York under uh, on the streets to whatever degree, he had that in common with you. There would have been a lot of mutual empathy because in the same speech I referred to a moment ago, he talked about his neighborhood in New York and he talked about the characters and he said, oh, how we did have them. And I thought, well, this is this is Hank. This is what you went through. This whole cast of characters, you were surrounded by them in a universe, especially in your earliest years, your universe wasn't many blocks around. It was very local. Yes. Oh, yeah. I was uh, fish out of water when I left the area, when I left the neighborhood. I, I didn't know what to do. In fact, uh, I had gotten into a scrape, uh, <laughs> and it was a Hebrew school. Uh, my father wanted me to go to Hebrew school, and I went, you know, just to say hi. And I got into a hassle with two brothers. And they approached the teacher uh, who greeted me and said, I remember the older brother, and he said, uh, I didn't know you allowed hoodlums in the school. And I said, who are you calling hoodlum? And he said, I'm not talking to you. And one thing led to another, and I was going to take both of them out and fight them both, beat them up. And the, the guy who was the vice principal of the school said, come to my office. And I sat that, there with him. And he was said, that I'd Mr. Like Cooperman? Mr. Cooperman, yes. I remember that because, story. That's a great story. Yes. Keep going. Oh, yeah. So uh, we called him Coop. And I said, Mr. Cooper, and he said, it's Cooperman, but you can call me Coop. And we, he took me to dinner. And I, I've never been to any restaurant in my life. And uh, he said, uh, they, they gave me a jacket to wear. And I sat there. And all I ever knew of utensils was either one spoon or one fork. And I didn't know that a knife was part of the set because I would pick up the, a chop. It was a lamb chop or whatever. Uh, no, I remember now. Veal cutlet, a breaded veal cutlet. And I jabbed the cutlet with a fork and held the whole cutlet up to my mouth and started to take a bite. And he just looked at me and slightly shook his head no. I put it back down. 
He picked up a knife. I picked up my knife. He cut a piece of the cutlass. I cut a piece. And I, I chewed. And he was showing me the right knives, the right forks, the right spoons. And it was a, an, oh, what a, a different world. You chewed your food. You didn't just take a bite and swallow. And I saw him pick up a glass and take a sip. I didn't just pick up the whole glass and chug a lug the whole contents in one swoop. And I just watched. And he smiled. And we had dinner, and I, he picked up the handkerchief, uh, the the, uh, the napkin to blot his lips. I didn't use the sleeve of my jacket to wipe my mouth. And we left. And I looked at him, and he said, you're a good kid. He said, give yourself a break. Let, let your instincts work. Instead of somebody looking at you and saying, what are you looking at? Maybe somebody recognized you from something. And I, I shook my head. And I walked home and thought about this incredible experience. Wow. Is that how the other people live? Yeah. That's how people live not the animal that I became so it was quite a lesson wow when I've we have you back Hank, Garrett, I'm sorry I was going to say when we have you back and let me extend an invitation heartfelt here right on air we would love to have you back early in the new year because you have tales from the hood and tales from hollywood galore you have a multifaceted life and entertainment career going for you and our listeners need to know not only is his book eminently worth reading and owning it's called from harlem hoodlum to hollywood heavyweight Hank Garrett, G-A-R-R-E-T-T. Yeah. Hank, we got to have you back for more of these stories because I find them inspiring and endlessly fascinating. Oh, and if someone orders the book, uh, it should be under the title of Books. And on under Amazon. Books on Amazon, right. Thank well. you so much. Oh, we are so grateful to have talked to you today, and we look forward to doing it again. You have so many wonderful, wonderful stories, and we, we re really just got to the tip of the iceberg today. We're not list people, so we don't have 50 more questions on a list. We keep them in our heads, and we like an organic flow of conversation, which you have provided for us and our listeners beautifully. And you'll be getting a call from us very, very soon. Harlan Will, the publicist, and we want to have you back very soon. Hank Garrett, thank you so much, sir. A real honor. Thank you. I am honored. And I would really, really from the bottom of my heart, God bless you. And you, you as well, sir. Happy holidays. Belated happy birthday. And I can't wait till we talk thank again. <laughs> what a great hour, thank Suzanne. Thank you so much. You bet, sir. Thank you, Hank. What do we have coming up? Uh, Jupiter Rising is coming up. Eileen Grimes, back in orbit, back in action. Hope you enjoyed, everyone. The preceding audio was via a Skype call.